Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Shari, um, Senior Fellow here at the Center for New American Security, and we're here for another episode of our Proliferated Drones podcast. I'm joined by my colleague, Alexandra Sander from CNAS, and Jeremy Hsu, who's a freelance science and tech journalist living in Brooklyn, who writes for Wired and other venues. Um, welcome, Alex and Jeremy. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, great. Glad, glad you're joining us. Um, so we want to talk today about the impact of commercial drone technology in military uh, operations, both what militaries are doing as well as non-state groups like terrorists. Uh, Jeremy, I know you've written on this a lot. We've had conversations for some of your um, your articles in Wired and other, other places. And this is a place that we've explored, too, in some of our work here. Just really um, interesting, exciting, kind of scary advances um, in commercial tech that people are then using for military and security applications. I just wanted to start there. I mean, maybe, you know, Jeremy, what do you see as some of the most interesting developments in terms of this um, this dual-use nature of some of this commercial technology? Yeah, I guess, uh, well, like you said, we had a lot of conversations about this in the past for stories. Uh, I think it's been interesting to see that uh, as commercial and consumer drones that people can just buy off of store shelves or order online are um, are sort of advancing in terms of their capabilities. Uh, they're kind of, in a sense, it seems like uh, becoming as capable or even in some cases more capable than many of the military drones that are out there. Uh, for example, uh, there's been sort of a greater sense of autonomy that we're seeing coming out of consumer and commercial drones where they can operate more on their own without direct human supervision. So there's like, uh, in the cases of consumer drones that you can just buy off the store shelves, there's like a lot of follow me uh, features where you can just have the drone essentially fly itself and keep its uh, camera pointed at a particular person or object. So the idea is that maybe, you know, hey, you want to go biking on a mountain trail, the drone will just follow you and may even do some collision avoidance and avoid some tree branches and other things as it's weaving in and out and uh, keeping right. its camera trained on you. And obviously that has uh, potential uh, implications, I guess, for the battlefield, even though. Uh, at the moment, I'm not sure that I've seen that many uh, obvious cases of that sort of collision avoidance and other capabilities coming into play on the battlefield. It seems though, on, on the battlefield, it's pretty much just the sheer accessibility of this sort of consumer and con commercial drone tech where we're seeing anyone ranging, you know, basically insurgents can just go and buy these things off of store shelves and are using them for everything from dropping grenades on armored vehicles and groups of soldiers to uh, even using them as sort of Trojan horse um, sort of suicide bombs that may land and then explode. Or even, you know, acting as saboteurs. I think it, there was a case, a few cases in Ukraine that I saw recently where uh, drones were basically dropping grenades or thermite charges and in some cases causing serious damage to like ammunition depots. Oh yeah, that's a great application, right? That's a soft target to go after for sure. Um, I think what's so interesting to me is, you know, I see this divergence in, in the trends between developments in software and hardware where the, you know, the, you're still going to pay by the pound, if you will, for aircraft, just the same way you do for a sort of large military aircraft. If you want something that's big range and payload, but the software capabilities on some of these small hobbyist drones are just amazing. I mean, I, you know, 
I follow this tech space and, and I'll continually go online and I'll see like the next generation version of, you know, a DJI Mavic or a Spark or something and be like, wow, I, you know, I envisioned that maybe in the next 12 months, we'd start to see some of these track and follow capabilities or object avoidance and boom, there they are, right? And they're out and you can buy it for, you know, $4.99. Um, What's it like for you? Do you find yourself that you're surprised by these developments too? Yeah, for like you said, in terms of the sort of advances in just like drones being autonomous and being able to do so many things on their own, that definitely strikes me as really intriguing and really surprising. Almost every time you see like what essentially you can, you're basically getting to the point where it seems like a drone is almost becoming a bit of like a robotic pet where it's kind of like, or your robotic paparazzi, depending on what you want from <laughs> it. And um, I'm, I'm kind of almost intrigued to see maybe down the line if uh, consumer and commercial drones will eventually move more into from just like the single very, you know, capable drone doing your bidding and also doing its own thing while following you around to maybe having multiple drones. Although I don't think we're quite at that point yet in terms of like drone swarms. But I feel like once maybe the commercial space moves there, uh, we're definitely going to see perhaps even bigger implications on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, technically it seems certainly doable. I mean, I'll talk to people in um, research labs in academia or um, in industry, and they're able to do things with cooperative autonomy. Um, I think the question is just sort of is, the, is there a market for that in the hobbyist you know, um, space or, may, or maybe more in a commercial space for people to be able to buy 10 or 20 drones and have them do something together? Um, you know, Alex, we had sponsored a, a while back uh, a war game where we started to explore what non-state actors might do with some of these things. Um, what are some of the things that stood out to you as some of the, the interesting use cases that came out of that? And how does that stack up with kind of what we're already seeing happening? Well, it's kind of scary. I think a lot of the things that came out in the war game are things that we're seeing right now. And one of the things that we've talked about before that I found most interesting in the war game was the non-state actor team using the drone video feed as a tool for propaganda. And uh, there's already been cases of Islamic State fighters using drone videos to uh, show the success of suicide bombings or film other attacks uh, in order to generate propaganda and gain support. Yeah, I think that video, the Islamic State video that Alex referenced, uh, that was really striking to me, I guess, when they sort of essentially put together like a kind of like a propaganda sizzle reel of just like their their greatest hits in terms of using militarized consumer drones that they had bought and turned into essentially mini bombers or other weapons. Right. And they've already started to leverage uh, internet and social media as a tool to spread their message. But adding uh, the ability to film video using these drones is just another element of being able to control the narrative on the battlefield. I'm sure we'll see other actors start to emulate that in the future. I think what's so interesting to me as we start to see this technology proliferate and then get incorporated by different actors is how, you know, actors are going to use this for their own kind of purposes and strategic aims. Um, for some, it might be propaganda. You know, for others, it might be harassing attacks on, on forces from the air, flying IDs. And you know, it, it can be – it's interesting that you can map the technology 
um, and see how it's proliferating. And we can try to do things to try to understand what people might do with it. We've tried to do war games and other kinds of exercises. But you're always surprised, or I'm always surprised by um, the types of novel things that others might do in creative ways to use this, in part because, you know, how they see their strategic interests may not be what, what we see sometimes. Um, so, for example, you know, there have been cases where Hamas and Hezbollah have flown drones into Israeli airspace. They've been shot down by the Israelis. And we might look at that and say, well, that seems militarily kind of silly. But from a propaganda standpoint, it might be very valuable. If you can simply message, look, we have the drones too, and we can come into your backyard with them, right? Even if they get shot down, that that's still a win strategically. Well, and on top of that, if they're willing to let these pieces of technology get shot down, it shows to a degree uh, with that messaging, hey, we're willing to risk it, and we have the capability to lose it as well. So it's something that's seen as replaceable. Well, and the, you know, there's certainly like a big strategic message to that and a component to that. But even just tactically, um, U.S. ground forces have been able to fight with basically without any threats from the air for decades now. Um, the last time we lost a, a you know, U.S. soldier on the ground from air from enemy air attacks was Korea, and and that's there was an incident. Um, uh, a couple of years ago when I was in Iraq and a buddy of mine had shot down a drone. This is in about 2005 time frame. It was very exciting to brag about this. I got, I got a drone kill. And I was like, you know, that's one of ours, right? Like they don't have drones. Um, what are you doing? But that's not true anymore. I mean, it very well could be the enemies. And now you have a situation where you're forced people to look up and worry about threats from the air. Um, and we see all the problems that IDs have been able to give U.S. forces where – you know, even though they're not they're not as capable as a tank, right, or a missile, um, they had these big strategic effects in terms of disrupting U.S. operations and causing casualties um, and sapping, you know, will and morale. And and here you have now this problem of the IEDs are coming looking for you, and so even if they just are harassing, they can still be um, can still have a really significant effect on the battlefield. I think that's a it's a it's a it's a really significant development for the United States to be able to prepare for this threat coming from the air now. Well, and I think it's also really hard to adapt existing anti-air capabilities and strategies to these, if you're talking about commercial systems, these smaller, lightweight systems. It's, you know, you can't hit them with a Patriot, you know. Uh, So we're talking about drone nets. We're talking about jamming. We're talking about uh, countries literally training eagles to snatch quadcopters out of the sky. Uh, it's a whole new beast. What do you see coming next, Jeremy, in terms of commercial development or countering to, you know, counter UAS systems to kind of defeat this that, that most intrigues you or interests you? Sure. Um, I guess, well, on the drone side in terms of uh, commercial development, I think, as you and I talked about uh, previously, uh, it seems like drones will probably be getting more capable in terms of their uh, general autonomous navigation and especially collision avoidance and indoor navigation, which means they might be able to fly around much more easily and readily on their own within fairly tight quarters, like in buildings or maybe even in tunnels. And that could have huge implications for increasing drone use, as we've already seen, and it's already been, been used in a lot of urban warfare, like by Islamic State, when uh, Iraqi forces were trying to retake Mosul and you could, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's pretty scary to imagine like a drone that could actually like 
pretty much by itself just navigate down to, you know, maybe an insurgent that says go there and set up, and then I'll set off the explosive and then it just navigates down a building corridor and finds a pocket of troops somewhere. Um, and I think the technologies that are maybe emerging for there are maybe miniaturized versions of uh, sort of LIDAR. So basically being able to map out the surroundings using lasers and then get a sense of where the drone is at. And then also, I guess, like vision-based navigation where it again can get a sense of where it is indoors, even when it might be uh, denied, like a GPS signal access, so it doesn't necessarily rely on GPS. Do you, Do you want to maybe um, for like for the listener who doesn't maybe is not familiar with it, explain visual aided navigation and kind of how it works? Uh, sure. Yeah. So basically, the idea of uh, visual na- vision aided navigation is that it can essentially try to compare its position with, uh, the drone can essentially compare its position with uh, objects that are just sitting around in the environment. So just like maybe a chair over there or (laughs) the wall over there. And then based on its relative positioning, it can sort of piece together a map of where it's at at a particular point inside like a building or maybe underground. I think that it's great that you raised it as something that's coming coming along, particularly because it seems like the kind of thing that um, is really fundamental um, from a military standpoint in terms of being able to navigate indoors in a GPS-denied environment, but also has obviously huge hobbyist and commercial applications. So I would expect that we'll see more of that in the next couple of years um, as those start to filter into systems. Because, yeah, why? I mean, there's got to be a market for people having drones flying indoors to, you know, film your uh, – your kid's birthday party and have indoor drone races and all sorts of other things. <laughs> right. And uh, I guess also maybe I sh- one other thing that's kind of struck me more recently, and this is because I'm in the middle of reporting a story on uh, on uh, delivery drones, but uh, it's really struck me that in a lot of the delivery drone operations I'm talking to, they are essentially, uh, from a sort of logistics standpoint, they're really getting efficient at essentially being able to have a lot of drones in the air delivering usually point to point so not necessarily like it's not necessarily like the dream of if the drone's going to just go to anyone's you know doorstep and drop off the package yet but they're pretty good at getting an operation going with just relatively not that many people so you, uh, in which the delivery drones are a number of like flights each day are like going from point to point and dropping off packages and then flying back pretty much on their own without that human supervision. It's just really interesting that I think we're seeing in the commercial space that uh, sort of like that drone to person ratio is already getting to the point where you can already have relatively few people managing a lot of drones. Now, obviously, that's very different from, I guess, many of the more chaotic battlefield swarm scenarios that you might imagine with drones and people, but I know that the military obviously wants to get to that point where um, where one soldier could maybe manage a number of drones. And it might be interesting. It's just interesting, I guess, for me to see that, at least on the commercial space, that's already to some degree happening, in a, although in a very different context. Yeah, that's a great example because that's that's the kind of thing where, um, yeah, moving beyond this current kind of remotely operated paradigm with one person controlling one drone and getting to this one-to-many, breaking up this, you know, shifting this ratio of humans to drones, um, has huge implications, and the fact that there's there's a market for that, right, means that we'll we'll see that technology get matured um, yeah. and get applied. Whether the U.S. jumps in with both feet or not, it'll get developed. Well, on the commercial side, you don't have the ethical considerations that you might have in terms of 
bringing a human in the loop and decision-making on the battlefield. So there'll be fewer barriers uh, to explore what that technology will bring uh, for commercial and even consumer applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I almost tend to think that, uh, I think maybe like, uh, as I believe you, Paul, and maybe some other people at the NAS have talked about before regarding AI, um, it definitely seems like the private industry in many ways is, you know, essentially, uh, it's, it, private industry is the one which is making the big advances in AI, and it seems like similarly in terms of drone capabilities, in many cases, private industry is also one doing it, not necessarily the government or the U.S. military. And so, as Alex was just saying, you couple that with uh, maybe, you know, not as much consideration on the ethical side, or just maybe not necessarily their consideration in terms of, well, what are the battlefield implications if an insurgent decides to weaponize this? Um, and you have a really, I guess, interesting trend where it seems like there's this potentially big equalizing force coming out of just commercial drone development that could easily be weaponized and put into hands of many people who are not necessarily, you know, in buying from U.S. military contractors. Yeah, no, I think these are tough. These are tough challenges because the technology is moving quickly, um, and it is. It's one that the U.S. military and national security establishment doesn't control. Um, it's coming outside of traditional defense companies, and so in many ways, um, on the defense side, the United States is playing catch up, right? Trying to understand what's already out there, trying to import them, um, and then of course when they do, sometimes there are challenges with that. There was just this. Um, this thing that had come out um, very recently on the Army not using DJI drones. Um, and at the time that we're recording this, there's there's not that much that we know yet. But what I mean, what do we know so far about this um, this information that came out, Jeremy? Yeah, so that case I found really interesting. Just I mean, basically it was, I believe, uh, the editor of SUAS News obtained a memo from the U.S. Army that was uh, asking all Army units to discontinue use of DJI drones due to, quote, an increased awareness of cyber vulnerabilities with DJI products. And uh, DJI is basically the world's, uh, well, it's a Chinese company that is, makes basically the best-selling consumer drones out there. So, like, they pretty much dominate that market. And I was almost, in a sense, surprised that the Army was apparently using uh, so many DJI products, I guess, generally in sort of what they call like non-program um, capabilities. And they said, the memo stated that they had issued over 300 separate releases authorizing the use of DJI products. And I guess without greater context, we can't exactly know what that number means, but it sounds like a reasonably significant number. And so, um, I mean, in, a, in the broad sense, I guess I was surprised that Army was making so much use of uh, basically you know, the same consumer drones that anyone can pretty much buy. And but and it's intriguing, but at the same time, I guess we don't exactly know now why the Army um, is, which cyber vulnerabilities at the Army sites it's most concerned about. But that certainly is, I guess, a, a big consideration for the U.S. Army and U.S. military forces when considering, well, can they make use of these commercial and consumer drone technologies? Well, it's an interesting asymmetry, too, in the sense that you may have these commercial technologies that are off-the-shelf readily available and you know, a terrorist group can pick up and use for some purpose. But for the military, it may not be – it may be available, it may not be appropriate in some way or have vulnerabilities that they're not um, – that's not suitable for them. I was reading a little bit about uh, the cyber vulnerabilities this morning, and 
one of the things that was interesting to me is it was talking about if you use the uh, software that comes with the DJI to upload video, um, it goes to servers that are located in China. So I don't know, you know, we're probably not using these in the army um, and uploading video to China, but that could be an example of the type of concern that you're worried about if you're using, you know, commercial off-the-shelf applications uh, and not directing whatever data you're collecting to your own private server. Well, the, the irony here, right, is those are the kinds of things that to some extent, you might really want a commercial drone company to collect data on to help then inform the FAA regulations or you know, do things like geofencing to make sure that the drones aren't being used to fly into an airport or other restricted areas. But yeah, from a military standpoint, um, may not be what you want. Yeah, and ISIS may be less concerned about that aspect of vulnerability, but if we're uh, doing an intelligence mission, then I can't, I can't see the U.S. being cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although, I guess on the flip side, um, that may be something the U.S. military would want to look into in terms of exploit. If ISIS is making so sure. much use of these consumer drones, they may want to, you know, move up some of that data and get a sense of what they're actually doing with them and exploit those right. vulnerabilities that they're concerned about. Well, listen, Jeremy, thanks for coming and uh, talking with us. This has been great um, talking with you about things that you're seeing in terms of developments in commercial drones and what, what we might see, um, you know, in the, in the future here. And there's a lot of – it's a fast-moving space and a lot of interesting and, and kind of scary things that we're seeing people do using some of this commercial drone technology. So um, thanks, for, thanks for talking with us. Yeah, for sure. I really, uh, I really enjoyed the talk. I really appreciate it. Uh hearing bouncing some of those ideas off of you guys because yeah it's it just seems kind of like what you were saying earlier paul i think um when you mentioned essentially improvised explosive devices and their huge impact that has basically shaped the wars in iraq and afghanistan and the fact that they're they were made from really cheap components and you know it's like a device that's like just hundreds of dollars can disable like a five hundred thousand dollar armored u.s vehicle and um just as there was sort of like that really cheap technology available for insurgents, I feel like in some, in a different sense, obviously, but I, I think drones are also perhaps an emerging force that may potentially have as significant impact on the battlefield. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I think you're probably right. Well, um, well, thanks again. And, um, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. And thanks, Alex.